If you were here last week, you'll know that we began a new series, and the series is entitled Scandal of Grace, and James, who was preaching last week, was sharing with us about uh, when Jesus was born, Matthew chapter 1 begins with a whole list of names. It's his family tree. It's the genealogy that works right the way through to his birth. And what we decided to do was look at the people in this family tree rather than moving on as we do so quickly to other things and spend our time just looking at some of the characters. And tonight, we're going to look at the character of Abraham. It's amazing, isn't it, what can happen if I turn around. Uh, So tonight, we're going to look a few moments about Abraham. But before we do that, this is what I want to just back up by introduction and say, which is an introduction for everything we're looking at. Please keep coming Sunday by Sunday to hear about all these different characters. What we really want you to see is not just their stories, but the God whom they served and the way in which they are actually contrasted to him. So there's some characters we're going to look at. And they, for example, are people that are very up and down in their lives compared to a God who's a covenant-keeping God who is committed and never changes. So it's not just an investigation in characters, it's more us getting to know the God who they are a part of. Matthew 1 genealogy is a scandal of grace and it's a scandal of grace because there's not a single person that's mentioned in the list of genealogy that deserves to be there. It's a scandal. Why why are their names there? They didn't do anything in order to warrant that favour. They didn't accomplish anything they weren't better than other people in fact as you're going to see as this series goes on they're pretty bad a lot of them so how on earth do they qualify to be there and the answer is because of the mercy and the grace of God thing is this if you're a Christian here tonight you don't deserve to be a Christian either there's nothing you've done to make yourself a Christian there's nothing any of us here tonight have done nothing Nothing we have done to warrant that we should be in God's purposes. And as we remind ourselves that all of these people are in the line that goes right through to Jesus, it's a bit of a mirror for us because we are going to see again and again how similar to them we are and how when we look at them, we don't just look at them and think, that's terrible what they did. Tut, tut, tut. I would never do a thing like that. But to reflect actually we do things that mean that we do not deserve the mercy and favour of God. And if these guys were in a list of names in Matthew chapter 1, and you are a Christian here tonight, guess what? Your names are written down in the book of life, forever in heaven, never to be taken away. And you don't deserve to be there. Your name does not... We should look at these names and say, how on earth did these guys get in the Bible? They should be looking at us and say, how on earth did you ever become a Christian? What did you do that should warrant that you should have this favour? Even some of the better ones on the list, they really weren't that good. We're going to look at one of the best in the bunch. And as we look at his life just very briefly, we're going to say to ourselves, wow, he wasn't as good as I thought he was. All of these people fall short of being worthy to be in the genealogy of Jesus. It's an amazing thing, but there's a verse in the Bible that says, all have fallen short of the grace of God because all have sinned. 
all of us are in the same lineage. So whoever you are this evening, and whatever you have done, if you know that you've become a Christian, the wonderful news is that he can redeem you and he can redeem anybody because it's not on the basis of our performance but his mercy and his grace. James uh, last week uh, quoted a quote from a guy called Sam Albury and I'd love to see this quote again because it's so wonderful. So I'm pinching it from him. It's not his anyway, it's Sam Albury's. And I just think you keep coming back week after week. It's a great thing. The family that Jesus came from is the family that he came for. That's an amazing statement. Why are they all so messed up? Because he came for messed up people like you. Why are some of these people so egotistic and self-centered? It's because you are. And I am. Why are these people in this list, this family that Jesus came from, so performance-driven? Because actually, if we're really honest, most of us are very concerned about how we come across to other people and the performance that we give to them. How come these people were deeply, deeply in sin? And rather than throwing rocks or stones at them, we're reminded that even though we are in Christ and our sins are forgiven, we are still prone to sin ourselves. And the amazing thing is God still is committed to us. He still loves us. He's still pursuing us. We look through these lists and we see their flawed attempts to try and be holy and try to do things in their own strength without God. We don't need God. And it reminds me often in my life when I try to do things in my own strength and fail miserably. We're a mirror of these people we need to learn things that the scandal of grace doesn't look doesn't end with just a group of people we read about, but it's about me. And here's the deal tonight, and I want you to really get this. Not only did God love me when I was dead in my sin, but he loves me now that I'm alive in Christ. And when I still mess up, his love for me doesn't change. That's undeserved. I deserve punishment. I don't deserve his grace and his mercy. But it's all he has for us and all that he gives to us. Abraham is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, right at the beginning of verse 1, where it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Wow, that's pretty cool. Jesus, David, Abraham. He comes really close to the whole thing. And the next verse says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob. And then it goes father, 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 all the way down the line. Abraham's the first father. He's known as the father of our faith. He's known as a great patriarch. He's, a, he's right up there. He's number one. You may not know this, but Judaism and Christianity and even Islam Look to Abraham as the one who began what they are today. He was the first. His children were the beginning of the Arab nation. And so many people look to Abraham with great respect, seeing him as a patriarch, one that we should follow. So shouldn't we try to be like him? Not really. Not when you get to see what he was like. But here's the deal. We want to be like the God that Abraham knew and the God that was at work in his life. The story of Abraham is very up and down with a lot of mess and a lot of things that he did. The story isn't just about him. The story is about the God 
who he loved and served, who was remarkably patient, merciful, forgiving, grace-filled, covenant-keeping. And nothing that Abraham ever did, did God disqualify him from his purposes. Again, if you're a Christian here tonight, the good news is Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. None shall pluck you out of his hand. If you are saved, you are kept for eternity in his love and mercy. Well, the story of Abraham is is not particularly a long story. If you're interested in getting more to know about him, and I can't do this tonight because we haven't got time, but in Genesis chapter 12 to chapter 22, just nine chapters of the Bible, that is the entirety of the story of Abraham. We're just going to pick tonight on one or two of those aspects of the story. So if you have Bibles, it will come up behind me as well, but Genesis chapter 12, we're just going to read three, three verses. This is the first time that Abraham's ever mentioned in the Bible. It's the first time that God ever spoke to him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham is obviously a special person because God speaks to him. And Abraham's the one who kicks it all off. He's the beginning of the genealogy. He's the the first one that starts the whole family that was spread throughout the earth. So we've got to ask the question, why did Abraham get chosen by God? And why did God speak to him in this way? And the answer to the question is, we have no idea. We have no idea. And that's an important point. Because there was nothing about him that warranted that God should choose him. He wasn't faithful because he didn't even know God until this point. It wasn't about performance because he hadn't done anything. It wasn't about his gifting or his looks or his power or his wealth. It was that God just saw him and said, I'm going to cause my purposes to be fulfilled through you it's undeserved this is the beginning of the scandal of grace can I say to you as Christians we're exactly the same if you're a child of God tonight you're spending your life thinking Lord why did you allow your love and mercy and grace to be poured out on someone like me and you know I have no idea either It's a mystery. It's a wonder. It makes you want to spend the rest of your life close to him and loving him because you're just overwhelmed by the fact that he broke into your life. It would be wonderful to say in chapter 12 that Abraham, having been called by God and been told you're going to have a child and you're going to be a a guy who's going to fill the earth and everyone that blesses you will bless you and those who curse you I'll curse and it's all going to be wonderful, is if it was all uphill from that point, it's not. It's all downhill. So just a few verses later in verse 10, we start to see that Abraham takes his wife Sarah and they're on a journey to the land that God will call them to and they come to a place called Egypt. Most of you heard of Egypt. Egypt was full of pharaohs. Egypt was a kind of very kind of, you know, full-on wicked kind of place. And so 
Abraham starts to get worried because he's got to go through the land of Egypt. And he's thinking, you know, if I go through the land of Egypt and these people see Sarah, who apparently the Bible says was so wonderful and beautiful, not as beautiful as my wife, but beautiful <laughs> nevertheless. Just got to say that. The reality is she was stunning. And he knew there was a possibility that these guys would want her and so they would kill him because he was married to her. So he said to her, I want us to pretend that you're not my wife, but you're my sister. And so that's what they said. And so the pharaohs took her. Can you believe it? She actually became married. She actually became part of that scene. And so here we have Abraham, the great man of God, whose motives for everything he's about to do are pleasing man, full of fear, self-centered and worried about what this means for him, lying, deceitful, and giving his wife away. It's not a good start. This guy is seriously a wheeler dealer who's got problems. And do you know what? We haven't got time tonight, but he does this again and again and again. He mucks up. He messes up. He doesn't do good things. He's God's chosen, and he's doing all these things. And God, rather than say, right, scrap that. We'll go and get someone else. Just stays committed to him. Just stays loving and loyal to him. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. It's all interwoven into the story of Abraham's abysmal behavior. Chapter 13 of Genesis and verse 16, just God keeps coming in, reminding him of his commitment. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am going to give it to you. And then we get to this passage in chapter 15, and it's very, very important that you see something here. Basically, Abraham has decided, I'm too old to have a child. God's promised me, but it's an impossibility. I look at my wife, and there's not like there's an awful lot of chance there either. I'm nearly 100. She's 90. She's barren all her life. So he says, well, I've got lots of servants in my household. And lots of them are young boys who are going to become men. Surely one of the Lord will take one of them, surely. So he concocts a plan to introduce to God a, a, a boy or a man who will be his heir, who will be, there you go, Lord. You've got the person that you promised that you would have. I will be the father of many nations through this one man. And in, he, in, in Genesis 15, verse 4, God interrupts and says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man you've been talking to me about shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. I'm going to cause you and your wife to give birth to a child. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and listen to, look at this, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Somewhere in the whole story, it come, comes and goes, Abraham keeps having this thought, what God has promised me is impossible. I cannot do this. We cannot produce this child. Therefore, the only one who can is the one who promised and spoke. Somehow God can make this miracle happen. 
And so you understand that the reason that Abraham is entitled the man of faith or the father of our faith is that he did not accomplish the promises through what he did and his works, but by faith alone. He came to a place where he believed. If you're a Christian here tonight, you came to exactly the same place. I cannot forgive myself. I cannot change myself. I cannot make myself a different person. But I look to the cross and I see what Jesus did and I believe that he can. And just like Abraham believed by faith, and so it was credited to him, God sees him and says, you are righteous. In the same way when we put our trust in Jesus, it's like God looks at you and says, and I make you righteous. You don't make yourself righteous. You become righteous through the work of the cross and the blood of Jesus. Chapter 16. Sarah is getting as bad as Abraham. And she chats to Abraham and says, all this baby stuff, it's really, really not going to happen. I've got a gorgeous, this is terrible, I've got a gorgeous maidservant, and uh, her name is Hagar. I suggest that you go and sleep with her and get her pregnant, and then we together, this is the plot, can present this child to God and say, there you go, Lord. So, He goes and sleeps with her. Guess what? She gets pregnant. Do you know the first thing that happens after she gets pregnant, just before she gives birth, is that Sarah despised her and hated her. And they both threw her out. And she has this child and they go out into the wilderness. And that's the fruit of it, of this wonderful man and woman of faith, that they throw out the very person that they've caused this to happen. The only one who helps Hagar and her child, who's now called Ishmael, is God himself. He sees her in her distress. He turns her around and cares for her, brings her back into his purposes. I mean, this is terrible stuff. This is, this is just awful. What a film this would make. We'd all flock to this one. And the reality is, it's like the man of faith is saying, God, I've got a plan. I'm going to give you a helping hand. You aren't able to do this, so here's the solution. So the story of Abraham goes on and on in this kind of way, with God keeps speaking to him. God speaks again in chapter 17 and verse 4, and just speaks, he won't let him go. Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham For I have made you, your new name is a father of a multitude of nations. His commitment to this man who's a bit of a scoundrel and a wheeler dealer is to keep coming back and reminding him of the promise. There's another thing, another story. Some angelic beings come to him and Sarah and Sarah laughs, a cynical laugh. They're cynical, they're bitter because they just think, well, God won't give us a child. And by the time you come to chapter 20, there's a king called Abimelech and they have to kind of weave their way around him. You're not going to believe this, but he turns to his wife Sarah and says, do you remember that time when you were my sister? Let's do it all again. I mean, it's outrageous. I mean, to let your wife go on one occasion is a bit neglectful, but this is downright ridiculous. And she goes along with it. Abimelech finds out that she's not his sister, his wife, and doesn't sleep with her. And in anger, returns her to this guy. How come this man is in the list? The father of the whole lot. 
How come he's known as the father of our faith? Well, there's two reasons. One, because of God's covenant and his commitment. And two, because Abraham comes to a place finally where he's convinced that only God can give him this child. And so we come into the New Testament. And this is why the New Testament often mentions Abraham. He's there in the book of Galatians when Paul is arguing with the church at Galatia and he's saying to them, look, you're meant to be justified by faith, but you're trying all these works. Consider Abraham. Look at Abraham. Abraham is your example. And Galatians 3, you can just stick it up there, guys, on the, on the screen because I haven't got time to go into it, but it just, uh, it just starts to talk about this, this, this guy who's, who's actually got promises and that these promises are then given to those of us who are now in Christ Jesus and everything promised to Abraham is now promised to us. And verse 29 says that we are now children of the promise that was given to Abraham. How do you get promises? You get promises by faith and you get promises the same way that Abraham did. You can't do it yourself. You put faith in the God who spoke and everything he promised he will do because he is faithful. Romans chapter 4 is another example of Abraham being mentioned uh, in the New Testament. And you read these verses with me and I dare you to not have a question in your mind because of what you've just heard over the last 20 minutes. Here it goes, verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do that which he had promised. Come on. Come on. You look at that verse, you think, what on earth is going on? In hope, he believed in hope that he should become a father of many nations. So he did not waken. Yes, he did. He was, he, he was constantly weak in his faith. He's up and down. He's believing and not believing. He's, he's trying this and trying that. He looked at his body as good as dead, but he wasn't that dead because he got one woman pregnant. So come on, what's going on in the scripture? It's kind of like weird because it seems to contradict everything we've said. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. It really did. And then this funny little phrase in verse 20, and this is where we come. But he grew strong in his faith. That's why the writer is here saying he didn't waver because the reality is that he went through something and he came out the other side. I think he was blown about. I think he was up and down. I think he was emotional. I think he was trusting, not trusting. Sometimes he had faith, sometimes he didn't. But he came to this place where his doubt turned into genuine faith. And when he believed God, this is the final bit about Abraham before we move on. He kind of came to that place. God, I believe you can do it. Still had to sleep with his wife. You know how babies are born? Does everybody know how babies are born? He didn't receive this baby out of heaven. So he made love to his wife at the age of 100. That takes quite a lot of faith to do that sort of thing. (laughs) You're all looking terribly holy as if you don't know what I'm talking about. Come on, think about it. How do babies get born? The real deal is this, that I did it by faith. And the result is, finally, Isaac is born 
the family begins, the genealogy begins, all the way down to Jesus. Because the promise was received by faith. I have four practical lessons that I want us to pick up tonight from the life of Abraham very quickly. And then we're going to come back into a time of worship and we're just going to wait on God for a while and, and then we're going to actually try and give you time to respond tonight to some of the things that we pick up. I think almost everybody in this room is going to identify with one of these four things and many of you might go the extra mile and <laughs> respond to more than one. The first thing is this, do we please God or do we please man? I mean, it really is a choice that's before us every day. Every day I'm challenged as to whether I should keep in with the in crowd and please men or whether I should actually do something which is pleasing to God that might make me very unpopular with my peers. And that's a real challenge for many of us. Somehow I get the impression, don't you? that Abraham is often driven by the fear of what people will think about him. Why else does he lie, become deceptive, cheat? It's all about how good I'm going to look if I do these things. It's all about me being accepted by my peers. I want the approval of men and the favour of men. And this is so relevant to us today in 21st century London because we're living in a society which is besotted with our performance, with our image, with the perception that we want people to have of ourselves even if it isn't true. So it's real for us. My conclusion after many years is this. Trying to please people is pretty hopeless. It's really quite exhausting and it never ever satisfies the people you're trying to please. Even if you've pleased almost everybody, there'll still be somebody that you won't be able to please. It's a black hole, it's a time that just goes on forever trying desperately to win the favour of people. To please men is really, really difficult and doesn't work and leaves you dissatisfied. But this really struck me as I've been preparing this week, and I think Abraham gets this. Pleasing God isn't difficult at all. Because it's all about his favour. He's already decided he loves you. He's already decided that he's pleased with you. He's just wanting you to be pleased with him. And the amazing thing is that when we become Christians, we realise that just one glance at the Lord, he comes in like a flood. I've, I've been really struck this week how hard it is to please people and how easy it is to please God. Because it's all on God's side. He's lavished his grace upon us. It's a scandal, but he's done it anyway. And in Christ, we are already accepted. We're already forgiven, not by our works or our, our performance. And while we're trying desperately to get the approval of man, we need to understand God has already approved us. I'm not trying to get God's approval. I'm not trying to win favour with him because his favour and his approval has already come into my life because of what Jesus has done on the cross. He has made us righteous. He has accepted us with all our faults, undeserving though we are. We've become his children. 
loved and approved by God. And I wake up tomorrow morning, I can spend the day trying to please everybody. I wake up the morning, in the morning already pleasing God. I can try and win everybody's approval. God has already approved me through Jesus. This is radical stuff and you're meant to look happy. <laughs> Second thing we learn from Abraham's life is this. Doubt is not the enemy. We saw that in the passage of Romans 4, this weakening and his body as good as dead and trying to unbelief, etc., etc. He was full of doubt. He was always doubting. But the good news is this. Even though he doubted, God never disqualified him. God never said, well, you're just so full of doubt. You're getting other women pregnant. You're trying to get your manservant to be your heir. Obviously doubting God's promises. God stays absolutely committed to him. He doesn't wipe him aside. Listen, if you have doubts, doubts do not disqualify you. Loads of us have doubts. The person behind you, in front of you, next to you has doubts as much as you do. Christians doubt. We doubt the promises of God. We doubt that God can do things. We doubt things in the word of God we don't understand. We doubt prophetic promises you know, if we pray for you tonight to be healed from a sickness, I, get, I reckon the battle will already be. I'm doubting that God is really going to do something. Some of us have so much faith in doubt, we absolutely believe nothing's going to happen. Doubt's real. Something that we as Christians live with. But it's not the enemy. The great thing about Abraham was this. He doubted, but his doubt turned into faith. I think doubt can go one of two ways. It can either go into unbelief, which is really bad news, where I absolutely do not believe, or doubt can turn into faith. Famous theologian Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing about doubt, made this comment for us as Christians. He said, doubt is actually just faith going through a bit of a crisis. I really love that. Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. What does that mean? It means faith's not always there. That's why it has to come. Because as we hear things and we observe things, faith becomes a reality. I've had loads of doubts in my life, but I've found that as I hang in there, finding the pleasure and mercy of God, eventually doubt turns into something altogether different. So tonight, if you are plagued with doubts about things, you're in good company. And Abraham, the father of faith, was just like you. Don't throw in the towel. Here's the good news. God loves you and he won't disqualify you. He's, God's not frightened of a bit of doubt. He's used to it. People have been doing it for generations. Number three, I learned from the life of Abraham that my past does not disqualify me. Abraham was accepted as being righteous before God, not because of the past good deeds that he did, of which there were not many, nor was he rejected because of his bad behaviour. He came through because he learned that God had the ability to deal with the things that had happened in his past and remove them. I really want to say tonight for us, today, this evening, do not allow your past to dominate you. Don't live in your past. I think there are some of us here this evening, I mean, a lot of you are young, you don't have much of a past. 
get as old as me, you have a long, loads of opportunities to muck up. The reality is, even though we might be young, some of us are living with things in our past that are like a shadow that hang over us. And you know that you're a Christian and you love Jesus, but there's this thing. And I know I'm forgiven for every, but not for this. And it just dominates you. A pastor friend of mine was with his wife counselling a lady last year and she just said, I've got something that just, I can't get rid of it. Just, I know I'm a Christian, I know Jesus loves me, but this is just something. And eventually they kind of, she wanted to say it and then eventually came out that she'd had an abortion and that every time she came to a meeting or every time she was in a situation of worship or thinking about what Jesus has done, this this thing, this, uh, this abortion that she'd had just would creep up and overtake everything and it made her feel guilty and full of shame and full of condemnation. These friends of mine were able to share with her something very, very important that you and I need to hear tonight. And that is this, that when you become a Christian, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what these friends of mine helped her with is something I want you to get grasp hold of tonight. That the cross of Jesus, the blood that was shed, not only forgives your sins, but removes them. And there's not big sins and little sins. So this, this dear lady with the issue of abortion, the problem was God had forgiven her for all her sins. And this, it's all lumped together. And we need to believe, we need to get a revelation of what I call eradication. Abraham's past was eradicated. That's the scandal of grace. He repented, and when he repented, he actually deserved punishment, but God gave him mercy and favour. And when we look at the cross and we see our sins forgiven, we must also understand that our sins are erased, they are removed, they are eradicated for all time. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, our sins are taken from us. And if I repent and God looks at me, he doesn't see all these things from the past. He sees Jesus. There is a verse in the Old Testament which repeated twice in the New. And it says this, God has chosen to remember your sins no more. Now let me just say that again. It's important you get this. God has chosen to remember your sins no more. It's different from God saying, I'll forget about your sins. Because if God said, I forget about your sins, you're quite a lot of intelligent people here tonight, so you'll be sitting there, and that means he can remember them as well. Because if God can forget, he can remember. So, if God says, I choose to remember your sins no more, and you repent of those sins, then those sins are removed. And it's impossible for God to remember the sins that you have repented of. All your past, all the things you've done in the past, if you repent of them, you're not just forgiven, it's eradicated. So you sin and rightly you come quickly to the Lord and say, please forgive me, I really didn't mean to do that. I, I repent of my sin and Lord Jesus, please would you forgive me? And we have the sense of God's acceptance and forgiveness. And then 10 minutes later, we come to God and say, Lord, can I just talk to you again about that thing we talked about 10 minutes ago? Because I'm not quite sure we kind of got through. And this is literally what I believe happens. God has no idea what you're talking about. Why? Because when you repented of it, 
He didn't only forgive you, he removed it. I've chosen to remember. What are you talking about? I've chosen to remember it no more. I cannot understand what you're talking about. And some of us are carrying things around tonight that we've actually said, Lord, please forgive me, but we're still carrying them and God has no idea what they've they've been eradicated. This is the scandal of grace. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's a new beginning. Grace not only accepts you as you are, it also removes your past. Here is the greatest understatement ever made in the Bible. Psalm 103. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. That's an understatement. I mean, if he treated you as your sins deserve, you wouldn't be sitting here tonight for starters. He has not treated us as our sins deserve because he's a God of amazing grace. Number four and finally, I believe Abraham lived differently. And I think it's time that we began to live differently. These characters in Matthew chapter 1, it's going to be so easy for us over the next few weeks to look at them and say, oh, he got away with that. Maybe I can get away with that as well. I suggest you don't go there because you're going to find out the trouble that it caused. Or some of us might think, well, you know, God forgives me and scandal of graces, I just ask for forgiveness and he forgives me and I'll do it again but he'll keep on forgiving me. The reality is that is not the will of God for our lives. Romans 6 verse 1, Paul says to the Roman church, he says, uh, and you have to get to this point, well, so we just keep on sinning then that grace might abound? It's called cheap grace. If I ask for God's forgiveness, will he forgive me? Yes. If I do it again, will he forgive me? Yes. Well, if I do it again, will he forgive me? Yes. But it's not God's will for you to keep on living in that place. The grace of God raises the bar rather than lowers it. And if you really get the grace of God, everything inside of you is overwhelmed by God's love and mercy. You just want to spend the rest of your life pleasing him. Your motivation for getting up in the morning, the motivation for becoming more like Jesus, the motivation is there because you're overwhelmed by the grace of God. Romans 12.1 says, In view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You present your body as a living sacrifice without any other motive than in view of God's mercy. You're in big trouble. I'll pray more. I'll read the Bible more. I'll fast. I'll go to every meeting. I'll go to every six o'clock meeting and I won't miss one. I'll prove to them this is my body, a living sacrifice. Cost. You know, I'm going without things to be here. The motivation's all completely wrong. It's not only helping you, not helping you, it's not pleasing God. What is the motivation? I am overwhelmed by the mercy of God. I don't have to pray, but boy, do I love it. I don't have to read my Bible. I can't wait to see what the author of the Bible has got to say. I love it. I want to be with the people of God. I want to rock up and be part of this community because I'm so overwhelmed that I get to know the favor of God and that he chose me even though I didn't deserve it. I think why did God choose us is the greatest unanswered question that we'll live with for the rest of our lives. But it also motivates us to say, Lord, I just, I just overwhelmed. I just want to love you and serve you and I want to please you for the rest of my life.